you know, when they're doing what they do, they get immediate performance feedback. It's like if I'm a basketball player, I either make the shot or miss the shot. That's feedback. When I'm doing my job every day, I'm not usually getting real-time feedback that is constructive, reinforcing, really essential and developmental. I'm just, I'm not. And so this becomes one of the challenges and imperatives for leaders is, can you make sure that you're aligned, the expectations with you and the employee? And then can you set up the kind of system, you know, an environment and one-on-ones and performance-based conversations where people can get as near to real-time feedback as possible? Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces diversify our thinking and achieve significant HR success. Hello and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment. And today I am joined by Andrew Freeman, who for over 25 years has been a real driving force in designing strategies that provide global leaders. Yes, that's you if you're listening or watching this with the foundations required to really transform business growth. And let's be honest, as we start to come out of this pandemic, who isn't looking to scale right now? Now, as managing partner of Shift Consulting, Andrew has helped countless companies across the globe flourish with his coaching, which is all about high performance mindset, something we're going to be talking an awful lot about during the course of this podcast. Now, I know that Andrew's goal is to use his insatiable passion, I think I should say, for human performance to really inspire the new generation of business leaders with the art and the science of creating and executing successful people-focused business strategies. And it's also led him to co-author an amazing book called Thrive. We're going to find out all about that later on in the podcast, but essentially it's a leader's guide to building a high-performance culture. So look out for that a little bit later on. But without further ado, Andrew, welcome to the show. Nick, thank you very much. I have been looking forward to this conversation since we had our first interaction uh, via email. I I dig what you do, what you stand for, and how you think. And this is going to be a great conversation. Thanks for welcoming me. Ah, Super kind. I'm looking forward to it equally. The book's fantastic. We're going to find out more about that. Who isn't interested in building high-performance cultures? I know that I am. So listen, before we jump into that, let's have a quick deep dive into your background. I mean, you've been doing this for 25 years, right? So tell us and the listeners a little bit about your journey that's led you on to, to this HRLD podcast with me today. Well, I, for me, I think it's appropriate for, for you and for your listeners to know that, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed mutt. Um, I'm a dog lover, which is maybe part of why I say that, but I'm a mutt in this way. My mom uh, was an elementary school teacher. She was in education for about 36 years. My father was a high-level sales exec and sales leader. And so I've always had this interesting blend of this crazy passion for learning, acquiring new knowledge, deep curiosity, while also really being driven to achieve, you know, just incredible exemplary results. And that blend for me has led me through a number of different things I've done in my life. But when I got wind of or a taste for consulting, I said, this is incredible. This is exactly who I am. I'm put in positions where at scale, I can really help people understand how they approach their work, how they think about leadership, what they think about culture. And over the past 25 years, I have just continued to learn and learn and learn. And I've worked 
in entrepreneurial startup organizations, Fortune 10 companies, and everything in between. And every time I get access to a new leader, a new circumstance, it just makes me, you use the word insatiable, that's true. I have this insatiable, voracious appetite to just learn more so I can help people unlock whatever is really locked up inside of them around being their personal best and their organizational best. So that's that's been the journey for me, um, just continuing to learn, continuing to contribute and leaving every interaction, Nick, with the other person or people feeling more, more inspired, more equipped, more knowledgeable, more access, just more than less. That's me. Love it, love it, love it. Well, look, a lot of people listening to this right now, certainly myself, we, we try to be good leaders. We try and um, inspire those around us. But often, particularly, you know, we're coming out of a really difficult time. We're often really head down. So we don't always have time to lift our heads up and think about how we're coming across as a leader, whether or not we even are a high performance leader in those words. So when you talk about high performance leaders and in particular, how they contribute to developing high performance cultures, can you tell us a little bit more about what that means to you and you know what that what a high performance culture does or what a high performance leader might be if you were to describe one? I can. I, I'm gonna start, uh, I'm gonna start just by talking a little bit about clarity. Right. You know, when it comes to high performance, people will often, when I first meet the, the leaders, they'll say, Oh, we have a high performance culture. We're all high performers, everybody here is high performing. And as we unpack that a little more and I seek to understand what they mean by that, really what they're talking about is they're high functioning. Their people are really busy. They're getting a lot of things done, but that's not high performance. High performance, you know, said, you know, the way that I think about it, my research and my work means this. First, you have to start with clarity around the organizational vision. Where are we going? What's the purpose of the organization? Get everybody really clear on that. Don't just put it on, you know, in words, on paper, on a website. Make sure that everybody knows it, they can own it, they can embody it, and that they're really, you know, fully immersed in that. Once they have, once we've got clarity on the vision, then we've got to have really foundational, clear organizational values. What matters the most to us? I'm not just talking about, you know, revenue and EBITDA. I mean, what do we really value? Again, not on paper, but in life, in our behavior, in the way that we think, in the way that we operate. So we've got clarity on vision, clarity on values. Then what that means is we need to then create goals, strategies, tactics, you know, plans, initiatives that will move us closer to the vision. If all those things exist, High performance then is when a leader or a team or an organization consistently meets or exceeds those strategies, those goals, those tactics that are in alignment with the vision and the values. That's high performance and that's high performance leadership. In your Thrive book then, to take it a little bit further, you talk a little bit about something which you call the exemplary performance system. So yes. how does that link to high performance cultures, high performance leadership and and well, yeah, what is it? How would you define what that exemplary performance system is? Well, it's 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 based on a lot of research um, that Paul and I have done and that we've leveraged that other people have done. Paul has been doing, you know, this work as a you know performance architect, a performance consultant for over 40 years. I've been doing it, as you said, for over 25 years. So amassed, we have, you know, that's over 65 years worth of our personal knowledge in addition to everything else that we've gained. So we've leveraged research and work from others. And we built this, Paul really built this exemplary performance system. And what it is, it's you know looking at the world through six major influences, Nick, that, that will either accelerate or decelerate performance. They either put barriers up or they remove barriers. And so I'll just do a quick run through and we can dig deeper on any of them if you want, Amazing. that's cool. 
So the first three that I'm gonna talk about are all external to the individual. And this is where the leader really needs to listen because these are things that the organization does to the employee. So these are things like the environments, the systems and the resources, right? What, you know, what's the environment? Physical, emotional, psychological safety, right? The resources, we're talking about people, you know, technology, systems could mean tech systems, it could mean operational and organizational systems. So environment systems and resources is one influence. Expectations and feedback is another external influence. Then the third external one is rewards, recognition, and consequences. Those three influences are all external to the individual and uh, they have a massive impact on whether a, a person, a team, or an organization can succeed. The other three are internal to the individual. So these are things like skills and knowledge that I bring to the, to bring to the job, capacity and job fit for the actual job, and my motivation and preferences. All six of these influences have an impact on whether the organization can perform at high levels. Now, what's tricky about this is all six of those influences need to be in full alignment. And I'm not kidding you when I say I have never, neither has Paul, <laughs> met an organization when we first meet them where all six are in alignment. It's really hard. And part of the reason that it's so hard, Nick, is there's not usually one person that's in charge of all six of those influences, other than maybe the CEO. But you know, the person who's in charge of developing skills for people isn't usually the person that's setting the expectations for what's required in the job. Or the person that's designing compensation is not the person who's actually thinking about the individual's motivation and preferences. Right? So those things are usually not connected. And when they're not connected, it creates a little bit of friction, some confusion, and anything like that is taking away from a person's time, energy, and focus on being his or her best. That's where you get performance drag. Having listened to that, which is really interesting. So is it possible to actually align them? Because from my perspective, you'd want to try and give someone, a, an employee, a journey that, they, that they're going to be on. So if sometimes the expectations you have, it's not going to happen now because you haven't quite learned that skill yet. But I want you to get here by here. Whereas if you're the employee, well, you also want to be in a journey. You want to be in an, a client that gives you an opportunity to grow. Often a client will set expectations, but yes, they're not there yet because the employee hasn't quite got there yet. But when you do, one of those angles may come into play. So maybe the remuneration is going to be compensated because you've made that skill. But as soon as you get there, the company's going to move the benchmark. It's going to move it again and again because hopefully they're always going to want more and the employee's always going to want more growth, right? So are they ever completely aligned if, if, if I've made that? It's about clarity. I don't know if I've been completely clear with my, with my question, but... I think, I think you are. I'll try to answer it. If I miss it, you'll tell me and, I'll, and we'll keep rapping sure. about it. Um, it's really hard, but it is possible to create alignment. What it takes is at the senior most levels in the organization, really tight alignment. And I talk about this, not just in the book, but just in general in the work that I do. It all starts with defining success. Success for the organization, success around strategic initiatives, success around people development, success in an individual role. If, if the executive leaders aren't super clear and aligned, I mean like no daylight between them, that, that, tight, that tightly aligned. Um, if they're not, we've got a problem and it's really gonna be hard to accomplish what we just talked about. If they are, it becomes easier. So you use the specific example of individual growth and organizational growth. Imagine that you know, things are so clear inside a, inside a company that if you were hiring me, you'd be able to say in terms of expectations, here is exactly what mastery in this role that you're applying for looks like. 
this is what you would do. This is what you would produce. This is what your contributions could make. Here's the different levels that you know, you'll likely go through over a relative period of time to achieve mastery. And here's what a potential pathway could look like, knowing in no organization is growth totally linear. And so what it requires is really open, consistent dialogue between manager and individual contributor around, you know, in this case, using you and me again, me as the individual, what are my goals? What are my aspirations? What do I want to learn? How am I taking responsibility for my growth? And then you, as my leader, making sure that you're connecting me, you're coaching me, you're, you know, mentoring me, you're giving me exposure to opportunities where I can not only expand my skills, but I can increase my contribution. And then from there, it becomes like a, a little bit of a choose your own adventure in an organization, as I'm learning new things, I'm discovering new things, I become passionate about new things, your role as a leader might be actually to promote me out of your part of the organization and somewhere else where the organization needs me and where I could develop personally. Too often we see great employees leave because they feel like, you know, their manager doesn't have their back or their manager doesn't want to get them promoted and they're limited. And so Nobody wants to live in a world where their possibilities are limited. And if you stymie me or stifle my growth, I will leave. It's interesting. So when I was I work in recruitment, right? So I've specialized in human resources recruitment for nearly 20 years. And the number one reason that I find people move positions is down to that management reason. They don't feel that they're getting support from their manager. They've fallen out with their manager or whatever it is. It's usually managerially led rather than remuneration led, for example. So taking that into consideration, from those six pillars that you mentioned, three extrinsic, three intrinsic, which has the biggest impact on performance culture? Because what you've just said, I would, it would suggest to me that that management piece probably has a greater influence on performance culture than remuneration, for example, because you feel happy at work, money's less important. But you may say different. You may say each, all, all six are, are equally important, but I'd love to know what you think. Uh, well, they're all important, uh, or they, we wouldn't have them in the framework for sure. I know you know that, but in terms of relative weight of importance, the three that are external to the individual, the extrinsic ones, those are significantly more impactful in terms of performance. And if, okay. if I had to pick one, which is what you're asking me, I, my personal favorite, the one I find to be most impactful is expectations and feedback. If you think about dancers or musicians or athletes, you know, when they're doing what they do, they get immediate performance feedback. It's like, if I'm a basketball player, I either make the shot or miss the shot. That's feedback. When I'm doing my job every day, I'm not usually getting real-time feedback that is constructive, reinforcing, really essential and developmental. I'm just, I'm not. And so this becomes one of the challenges and imperatives for leaders is, can you make sure that you're aligned, the expectations with you and the employee? And then can you set up the kind of system, you know, an environment and one-on-ones and performance-based conversations where people can get as near to real-time feedback as possible? If they do, here's what I, here's what I know. People who come to work every day want to do a good job. They want to achieve. They want to do meaningful work. They want to be proud. They want to go home knowing that their day was worth it and their work was worth it. Absent of clear expectations and really helpful feedback, it's difficult for people to know what's what. And it's usually only the top one percenters that can thrive in any kind of system or environment. Everybody else, you know, they're doing their very best. They're doing good work. They're trying really hard. But absent of that feedback, they're really going to struggle. So that's the one that I would, that's the one I would double down on. Right. Uh, to be honest, I have to say, I agree because that kind of the closest linked as well to, to the management influence, because if you're not getting those expectations or feedback, then obviously it's going to have a, a negative influence. Fantastic. Well, look, we talked at the start of the introduction. You have recently released your book, Thrive, uh, which obviously provides leaders with a, 
actually, it's a really clear blueprint for those that are interested in a book for building a high performance culture. It teaches leaders how to create clarity, which you mentioned earlier, and alignment, which we talked about briefly. And it talks about what high performance looks like. But more importantly, I think, well, not more importantly, but to add on to that, it also tells the reader how you can replicate that at scale, which I think is fantastic. So tell us a little bit more about that last element, how we can replicate this at scale. And, and also what actually inspired you in the first place to co-author this book with Paul? Well, the, I'll hit the second one first. The source of inspiration for me um, comes from a couple of couple of places. One is I've been doing this work um, for a while, as you mentioned at the at the top, and I think about things like why am I here? And I mean truly, why am I here? Why am I on this planet? This go around anyway. Um, depending on what your listeners believe, they're either going to get like get down with that last part, or they're going to go, "This guy's crazy." Um, but truly, I think about why I'm here, and I know that part of my purpose of being here is to have legacy and impact and share what I know and what I have access to um, with others so that they can be better in whatever way better means. And doing the work that I do and the clients that I've served over time, that has been really meaningful for me. But for me, that's not big enough. You know, in the intro to the book, you know, your, your listeners, if they pick up the book, they'll see this. I tell a bit of a personal story about why I wrote the book, and one of them is I really felt like I'd been playing small in my life for a number of years. And for whatever reason, like afraid of a bigger stage, afraid to share what I know, afraid that people might not think it was worthy or that I'm not worthy. Like I've got as much self-doubt as anybody, you know, in the, in the world. I just have learned to harness it better. And I felt like this book was a way for me to share what I know, have that impact and legacy and give away, literally give away what I know to be the most critical factors around driving a high performance culture. I wanted this to happen at scale, even if I'm not consulting with people for them to read it and go, holy moly, this is not just like an interesting read. I can use this. I can yeah. put this into play immediately. That was really important to me and to Paul when we wrote this. We didn't want it to be academic only. We wanted leaders to read it and go, got it, can do this. I can transfer it right now. I'm going to jump in slightly because I don't want to give this bit away, but you're absolutely right with the book. And there's something you do in the book, which we're going to, I'm going to ask you a question about just in a minute, which takes the words off the page and makes it more usable than you may find in other books that, that you know, that talk about culture. So I'll definitely put, you know, where I'm going with this in terms of your accelerators, right? So I'm going to park that and come back to that. Because I think that's a really interesting point to, to educate the listeners in terms of what the book can offer rather than just reading. And I would definitely want to talk about that in more detail. So just want to make yeah. sure you want to give that bit away too soon. Absolutely. I also don't want to forget your first question about replicating at scale. How do you do that? How does a leader do that? You know, once you've got the clarity that we talked about, the alignment, things like that, there are really tried and true principles. One of the ones in the book that, you know, is a, is a cornerstone to the actual, you know, to the manuscript and what people can use is what we call this role excellence process. Uh, this is a way that leaders can really replicate at scale. So it's a time-tested, proven, scientific way that we go about understanding what high performance looks like. And what we recommend is for leaders to really look at roles that are most critical to driving the highest uh, impact business results, and also where there's the greatest number of people in that role. Oftentimes that's like customer success or sales or operations, you just think across your entire enterprise. And the way that you, you know, that we leverage this process at scale is to really define, a, you know, and create this blueprint of high performance, which includes 
the what we call outcomes. These are the things that the people in the role need to produce. It's not what they yeah. do, it's what they produce. To understand the specific tasks that are most critical to produce those things. And then also to highlight accelerators and barriers that, you know, that might make it easier or harder to, to do the work. By studying the people who are absolutely the best in the role, we're able to produce this blueprint. And here's the scale part. Once companies and leaders have the blueprint, they can completely rewire the way they recruit, interview, hire, train, onboard, do their training and development, you know, programs, career plan, succession plan, all that you get to strip out so much waste. We have seen, you know, leaders reduce the time that they take people out of the field and what they spend on training, reduce it by upwards of 30%. That's wow. massive economic impact to the bottom line, just on the cost saving standpoint. And then the performance impact on the upside is also exponential. So that's the way to replicate it at scale. It's first start by defining what excellence really is and then rewire all those other points to make sure that it aligns with this new standard. That's how you create it at scale. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. All right, so I specialize in recruitment, but so often hiring managers responsible for doing their own recruitment, you, would think, you know, because they know what they want, doesn't make them great recruiters, doesn't make them great interviewers. And there's a lot of inefficiency in the chain because they know what they want. But, the, you know, recruitment's a skill. Uh, interviewing is a skill. Onboarding is a skill. And often hiring managers, particularly in other sectors, they've never been trained in those elements. They just know they need to hire somebody, right? So it's often it's those individuals without that training, without that skill that are involved in that process. And that's why there are specialists out there that can support it. But it's a good example of where there is inefficiency in a chain. And if you, if you identify that and put the right people in the right places, then you can really maximise your efficiencies. I'd love to know from your perspective, if maybe you've got an example of, where you've gone, uh, you've worked with a client, where you actually sort of implemented this blueprint, worked with them and saw some real fantastic results on the back of the transformation, the change. Yeah, absolutely. I can think of, I can think of one um, in particular that just pops to mind right away. That's, that's pretty compelling. All the work that we do, and I mean this is, but in this one particular client, there were a couple of things that were going on for them. One is they really, they're in a highly competitive industry, um, transforming very fast, the industry is, They've grown by um, acquisition a lot over time. And what they were finding was, you know, their brand reputation wasn't great. They fashioned themselves as being the employer of choice and they were just struggling to actually make that true. And so they were having a tough time hiring great people and they were losing their current great people. Okay. And so there's a lot of work that we did, but it included this role excellence process and rewiring everything that I just mentioned. And what they saw once we got this process in place was, you know, Bottom line savings, they've reduced their recruiting costs and their hiring mistakes by over $400,000 a year. That wow. is significant. And then on the upside, from a revenue standpoint, once we got this stuff in place, and they already did a lot of things right. They weren't completely broken. So I don't, I'm not painting it like that. So they were, they were good, but they wanted to be great. On the top line revenue, once we got this installed, they hit their 
revenue goals, their street expectations two years in a row, 24 months, month after month after month after month, they continue to beat the expectations they set to the street. They were setting the pace for everybody in the industry. Uh, it can work like that. It really can. Bottom line savings, top line revenue growth, and where people are really feeling a greater sense of purpose, a greater sense of passion, a greater sense of pride, you know, being in the business you're in, I know you're familiar with, you know, the, the platform Glassdoor, their Glassdoor yeah. ratings went up, their approval rating of their CEO went up, their brand image went up, you know, it became easier also for them to recruit people. They had people knocking on their door saying, can I come work here? Really good people, as opposed to, hey, we got to go find people. How are we going to do that? It really changes the whole dynamic. And that's just one example of, of yeah. what happened. It's a great example. How often then in your line of work do you see a disconnect between the brand message, i.e. we're a great place to work, and the reality, number one? And number two, how often do you see a disconnect between the internal side, so the values and missions that may be plastered on a, in a memo, a board, whatever it is, but actually they're not necessarily living the values, or even employees don't always know what the values are because they were written so long ago. Is that a, are both of those quite common disconnects? They are, yeah. My answers were going to be a lot and a lot. Uh, they are, they are quite common disconnects, and and it shows up a bit like this because everything that you said around hiring, you know, and recruiting, and it's part of the reason why you do what you do and why you're so good at it is, people aren't great at interviewing in general. Most often, people either don't use data or they ignore it during the hiring process, and we're we gravitate towards people that we generally like. Yeah. People who are sort of like us, who talk like us, who laugh at the way things that we do. And because the interviewing and the hiring process is, you know, not amazing in many companies, the expectation piece is set wrong. And the interviewer and the interviewee are so focused on impressing each other and trying to sell each other on why this relationship should work that they don't get down to the fundamental things of what's it actually like to do the work here and what actually, how do I really think as the individual and how will I operate? So what winds up happening is, you know, anybody can be anywhere for six months and be happy. Honeymoon phase, right? Sure. And then all of a sudden, you know, people start to go, well, this job isn't exactly the way that I thought. And my boss is not, isn't super supportive. And I'm finding it really hard to get my work done. And then the boss is like, wow, I thought Andrew was going to be better than this. I'm starting to see some things I didn't see in the interview. So we're disconnected right, right away because we're not clear in the message we sent out to the universe in the recruiting post is different than how it actually is. And then internally, there's not a company really, especially a large one that we work with that doesn't have values. But what we often see is those values not coming to life through behavior. So for example, we might say like, be drivers of change and be great team players. And you know, we embrace integrity and all those kinds of things. And I'm not saying them in a perfunctory way, those are just common values. But then what you see in organizations is, especially at the leadership level, people operate in silos. Uh, they don't share information. They hoard it because they feel like, you know, their knowledge and information is 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 power in an, in an unproductive way. If they give their knowledge freely, they become less important, right? So they hold on to it. They want to drive their pet initiatives forward. So even though there's alignment around or suggested alignment around what's most important in terms of our investments, our strategies, our goals, you still have people that go, yeah, I get that, but I really need to do this other thing. And so they create this lack of alignment, which then perpetuates turf wars, politics, silos, unhealthy influence. And th those are just some examples of what happens and where it falls down. Doesn't have to be that way, but that's pretty common. Sure, sure. I think your recruitment example is a great one. Unconscious bias is a real 
a real issue in the recruitment process sometimes. And we do tend to navigate and levitate to those that we fear we have most in common with. But actually, the studies show that the more diversity we have in our businesses, the more diverse thinking we'll have, the better the results. And, you know, I use that, I'm a big soccer football fan. You know, the old analogy is that 11 David Beckhams doesn't win you the World Cup, you know, because you still need a goalkeeper. That's a specialist tool. You need a striker. And it's an interesting thing. You don't want people the same. You need to be able to look at what it is you need that's going to fill the gap you're trying to recruit, not just the personality that you get on with. Um, so really well put. And it resonated with me as a recruiter. So I'm, I'm really glad I asked the question. I want to dive back to the uh, the book again, because I mentioned, I didn't want you to give it away too soon, but the book is amazing. When it comes to life, much more than just uh, the written word, you're not reading it and sort of taking it all in, because you give uh, access to a number of downloadable tools, templates, you've named them uh, accelerators. I think there's 20 in the book that people can actually utilize to really help leaders implement the processes and practices that you talk about. So it's not just taking it off the page and interpretation, actually you've got tools and templates to really drive that and add value to your business straight away. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what those accelerators are, how you name them and, and how they really help drive performance. Sure. Yeah, the, the things that, you know, as I mentioned before around the practicality and the usability of this, Paul and I really thought about the work that people need to do to drive successful transformation in these high performance cultures. And we looked across the processes, the methodologies, the frameworks that we use, and we said, where are the most common pain points and where can we help people really you know, take it as you, you know, as you're talking about from concept and their interpretation to actually something that they can use today, because you probably have, I mean, I'm looking at your bookshelf. You got a lot of books on your shelf. A lot of I people have. have books on their shelves and they've read. I mean, people are well-read. They listen to podcasts. They get great ideas, but the gap is how do I translate that idea into action? People, yeah. it's tough. It's tough to do. So, you know, the kinds of things that we put in the book really are, they line up very well to our approach and our methodology. They include things like what are, what are absolutely just great interview questions to ask? What's, a, what's an objective interview scorecard look like? So that if you have a panel of interviewers, they're all thinking about and scoring the same way and it doesn't become super subjective. Like, I like that person, I didn't like them. But that's not, that's not a helpful way to make a hiring decision. We gave examples of the role excellence profile. We gave examples of a learning and development curriculum, which is critical that the learning and development curriculum maps to the role excellence profiles. So all these things are there. We, you know, how do you have great one-on-ones with your direct reports? How do you have good performance reviews? All these things people have access to. They can go right to the website we set up for the book. They can download them immediately, print them out, customize them for their business, or in fact, use them as we created them. The other thing that I would mention um, in the book, we did this very intentionally also, in addition to the accelerators, is we created these reflection moments, um, which I know you're familiar with. So Thrive Reflections, at the end of every chapter, um, and sometimes even more than that, we put pauses in there and we asked specific questions so that the readers could think about what they just read and how it applies to their work. So think about a strategic initiative that went well or didn't. Think about a hiring mistake and what they could learn. Think about a role that's most critical to the business success and how much variability there is in performance right now. Those kinds of things so that as people are zooming through this, it pauses them a little bit and makes them really stop and think and go, so what am I taking from this? And what can I go do as a result of what I just read and what I just learned? That was really important to us to give people the access to those tools that you mentioned, but also stop them and cause them to just think a little bit more. 
Sure. And actually, I'm really glad you mentioned that because right at the top of this podcast, I talked about one of the problems I have as a leader. I know others will have it too, is we're so busy all the time that we're so head down. We don't lift our heads up and reflect and think. And those reflective statements is a great example of where you have an opportunity to lift your head up and think strategically about how you actually want to improve the performance of whatever it is you're working on or your culture or your team or whatever. I don't do it enough. Um, and people don't because it's one of that old adage of there's never enough time, but actually we need to factor that time in because if you use it wisely, it can have you know amazing results, which as of course your work and your book uh, have shown. So um, last question really, because in your book, you also talk a lot about mindset. It's really hot topic at the moment. So positive mindset, resistance and resilience, and them all being really fundamental elements of a high performance culture. So tell me more about those three aspects. Sure. The resistance and resilience is could be one of my favorite parts of the book because, you know, the, the days where people say things like, you know, it's not business, it's personal or work and personal or separate. They're not, they're more commingled than ever. Um, we've got to, you know, Adam Grant used a phrase um, that I really like recently called work-life rhythm. We've got to establish this rhythm and we've got to realize that all of us deal with stuff every day, all kinds of stuff in our minds, in our lives, you know, at home, at work, those things, again, are commingled. And so resistance and resilience said uh, another way is about understanding our light self and our dark self. So every day we're going to meet resistance. Resistance comes up like, what am I afraid of? What kind of doubt do I have? What kind of worry do I have? Where's the unhealthy stress? Um, where am I playing small? Right? Th those kinds of things. The light self is about resilience and it's about, you know, operating with hope and faith, and I don't mean religious faith, I mean faith that we're gonna get through this. Example sure. would be, you know, all of us, you and I recording this podcast and everybody that's listening to it have all gone through incredible, incredible stress, trauma, difficulty and challenges. And the reality is every one of us has risen to and met those challenges. And I know that because we're here. Sure. So we, we can all do hard things because we've done hard things. And so just first, people understanding that those things are part of us and not to shy away from those moments of resistance, not to try to avoid them. There's a saying that I love, the only way out is through. You can't avoid your aversions. It's like if you have a fear that you're not going to have enough money or that you're always going to be in debt, you will you will accumulate more debt. If, you, if you're fearful that you know, you're not enough at work or you're not adding enough value, you will add less value. That is just the way that the brain works. Right? We, we, we think things and then we wind up behaving in a way that aligns with the things that we think. And so the mindset piece that supports the resistance and resilience is all about making sure that people have a strategy on getting their head right every day. You know, whether that's through gratitude, journaling, you know, therapy, a combination of those things, but really thinking about what is your worldview? An easy example of this would be, you know, New Year's resolutions. We're recording this in towards the end of March, you know, beginning of January. Every year, people set all kinds of New Year's resolutions, yeah. oftentimes something to deal with, like losing weight or stopping smoking or something like that. By this time every year, over 80% of people have quit whatever their resolution was. Well, why is that? You know, it's like people try to lose weight. They try to stay healthy. They try to stick with an exercise program. And the research we've done and that we've read through folks like Carol Dweck, who wrote a book on mindset and, and others, is because their head's not in the right place. They're not focused on why this thing is so important. Why, you know, why is it important for me to lose the weight this time? Why is it a non-negotiable? What's attached to that? 
You know, it's not, nobody's going to logic themselves into exercise. And we all know exercise is good, but we're more deconditioned than ever. Makes no sure. sense. It's because people aren't getting their heads right. So the equation is get your head right. Think about what you're focusing on. Be aware of your aversions. Know that resistance is going to show up and find ways that you can bring your light self or your resilient self to work and your personal life every day. That's really the equation. It's easily one of my favorite parts of the book. Great, fantastic. Well, I think why is a really important one. You talk about wellness, finding your why, which comes across a lot of the leaders I speak to, such as yourself. You know, if you can find your why, ask yourself three times is often something I hear where you, I want to lose weight. Well, that's the first why, but why? And then you ask that answer that question, then answer again and answer again. And then you really find the true why, which can be really powerful. Talking of sayings, I've mentioned this before, my favorite, which isn't too dissimilar, um, is it's, life isn't about waiting for the storms to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. But keeping that positive mindset, which I love anyway. So anyway, this has been a great chat, Andrew. I know we could talk for a lot longer about a subject I'm really passionate about. But for those that want to find out more about you, more about your book, where can I direct them? Any links like uh, you'd like to share on the pod? Sure. The, uh, the website that I mentioned where there's, you know, um, podcasts like this one is one of the places where this will live. Articles, interviews, all of the accelerators and people can, you know, can get the book. It's thrive.shifttheWork.com thrive.shifttheword.com. And then for anybody who is on social channels, you can find me on the major ones, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, my handle is the same. It's A Friedman Thrive. I'm happy to connect with any of your listeners uh, because people who are passionate about this podcast uh, care about the same and similar things that I do. And I'd love to make those connections. Well, I'll definitely make all of those um, all of those sites available so people can link. Just check into the show notes if you listen to this podcast. I'll have all those links available for you. Facebook, LinkedIn, the website, just to mention again, thrive.shifttheword.com. So do check that out as well. Lots of downloads, including some of those we've discussed on this podcast. So definitely go check that out. Of course, if you are an HR or L&D leader listening to this podcast right now and you need some recruitment support from someone that is as passionate as you are about doing a great or delivering a great recruitment service, then please do give me a call. My name is Nick Day. You can get me at nick at jgarecruitment.com or 01727 800 Just leaves me to say a huge thank you to Andy for joining me today on the HR L&D podcast. And I look forward to connecting to all of you again very, very soon. Take care of yourselves and each other. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.